News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here with Professor Christina Greer. Hello. Hi there, Harry Siegel. Hey, Katie Onan and Alexandra Lynn. We're going to be joined shortly by Matt Master, Stephen Romalevsky, and the great political observer, Bridget Bergen, to help explain to listeners and us what's happening in this exceptionally confusing election year with new maps getting worked out right now and two separate primary election dates looming amid a truly wild game of political musical chairs. And then by Nick Pinto to talk about the new journalist-owned publication Hellgate online at hellgatenyc.com that he's a founder of and that debuted this week. And his piece there about an attorney for the police department who was just fired after months of stonewalling lawyers suing the city for police abuses during the 2020 George Floyd protests after she was caught forging an email to try and cover up that stonewalling and which critics say is no anomaly, but rather one of the MOs of the NYPD. But first, here's just a bit of what's been happening around the city this week. After decades of commissioners holding a monthly press conference to discuss the crime numbers, the NYPD quietly announced it will now deliver just quarterly briefings, a change that's conveniently timed just ahead of an anticipated summer surge in the crime numbers that's going to be a critical test for Mayor Eric Adams, who pledged to fairly restore public safety. And it's still early, but so far the numbers have continued to go up on his watch, and by the fall he's going to own those. There are some good signs. Um, As of April, while the major crime rate was up nearly 35% compared to last year, uh, the Adams administration has made gun violence a priority, And in fact, the number of murders this April fell to 31 from 50 last April, and the number of shootings fell to 105 from 148, which Police Commissioner Kichan Sewell said in a release, rather than a press conference, was, quote, noticeable headway. Meantime, in Albany, dot, 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 after insisting that they didn't want to change the rules mid-game, the legislature reversed itself, folded again and passed a new law, basically a reverse bill of attainder, uh, that lets uh, Kathy Hochul, the governor, get Brian Benjamin, who had been the lieutenant governor, and then was arrested and resigned after just seven months on the job, and by the way, says he wants to serve again after clearing his name, Uh, but he is now off the ballot at the uh, very last minute, thanks to this, uh, this new law. So she will not have to uh, have a running mate who can't actually serve and maybe go into prison. And she's brought in a replacement saying, you know, New York deserves a lieutenant governor it can trust this time, apparently. That's uh, Rep. Antonio Delgado, who traded in what was shaping up to be a difficult run for re-election uh, for a place on the ticket and a job that, as Hochul well knows, is basically just ceremonial so long as the governor remains in place. Now, interestingly, this means that we have uh, a ticket with no New York City candidate, which is really quite a rare thing uh, in New York State in the last century. Um, In New York, we also must note the governor and the lieutenant governor run separately. And so there's still a chance that Hochul could get hitched with the running mate uh, representing the left and not of her choosing. 
Um, she's hoping to govern along with uh, Delgado, who won a seat in Congress in the Catskills by beating John Faso, the attorney and former lawmaker who helped weed the successful lawsuit undoing the maps Democrats drew up here to benefit themselves. Um, that decision to throw those maps out by the Court of Appeals, the highest court in New York State, means everything's scrambled now, where the districts are, uh, and even when the elections will be. Pulling the camera back to look at this from a national perspective, uh, Democrats had hoped their gerrymanders here would be a bulwark uh, for the party nationally against GOP gerrymanders elsewhere, but it's not shaping up that way. It's no coincidence that two of the people running for state office, Delgado and Democratic gubernatorial candidate Tom Suozzi, gave up seats in Congress to launch those runs. And uh, both of their seats could very well end up uh, getting taken by Republicans now. And all that's not to mention Andrew Cuomo still looming over things. Uh, so with that, let's welcome Stephen and Bridget, who track these things closely and hopefully can make some sense of all this uh, to listeners and to me. Let's jump right in. Welcome to FAQ. We've got Stephen Romaleski and Bridget Bergen, two of my favorite FAQ NYC guests. And we're going to talk about maps, 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 maps. Um, there's so much going on in New York. Uh, about redistricting and what's going on in Albany. But before we talk about New York, I want us to just zoom down south just a little bit and talk about Florida. Um, both of my parents are from Florida. My mom's from Northern Florida and outside of Jacksonville. My dad's from Miami. And I'm really worried about what Governor DeSantis uh, is doing. So a few weeks ago, for those of our listeners who were following along, there was essentially the Democratic map, the Republican map, and then like the DeSantis map. And it seems as though he was very adamant about redistricting Florida in a way that would disenfranchise a lot of African-American voters. It looks like Val Demings district might be gone. And uh, someone else's, I'm blanking on his name right now, someone else's uh, African, primarily African-American district. So Stephen, let me start with you uh, and some of your mapping services that have been looking at not just New York, but Florida as well, and kind of give us the overlay of the land, and then we'll, we'll come back up north. Well, thanks. Um, we, our team at the CUNY Graduate Center has created uh, what we're calling redistricting in you mapping websites. And we've done this for New York, of course, but also about nine other states, including Florida. And so I don't know that I have a lot of substantive uh, opinions or analysis about those maps. There are a lot of people in Florida that certainly have, have been doing that, which I've been paying attention to a little bit. But we've been uh, displaying all of these different proposals that um, have been made by individual legislators and by uh, Governor DeSantis's office. And it's uh, definitely been a complex process. You know, one thing that was kind of interesting to me about it is that in New York, <clears throat> uh, people have been very critical of the New York State so-called Independent Redistricting Commission because they proposed two district plans as opposed to just one, which was what everyone was expecting. In Florida, you've got like at least a dozen different congressional plans and probably the same number for state Senate and state house plans. Um, so it's kind of the wild west down south. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the dirty south, as we like to say. What's the website, Stephen, for our listeners who want to just check Florida, out maps? Florida.redistrictingnu. Dot org. Okay. Florida dot redistricting and you and you 
Okay. So Bridget, let's, I know that you, you have to go to Florida sometimes as well. <laughs> the no mask, wild, wild west down south. So can you give us the lay of the land of where we are in New York state right now? It looks like we've got a new Lieutenant governor. <laughs> Hi, Congressman Delgado, uh, Lieutenant governor Delgado. We've got Kathy Hochul who, who's, coming out of like the worst week ever, where it's like you've got the left and the right mad at you um, and you can't seem to sort of get it together. And now we've got this issue with our redistricting. And so we we know election day is June 28th. Where are we and what should we expect? Wow. Well, you know, one, we know that there is a primary that's scheduled to take place on June 28th currently, which would be only for statewide offices and possibly for the state assembly. But what we know without a doubt is there are a series of court challenges um, that could change some, if not all of that. Um, just before this taping, there was a federal court hearing um, over kind of what the judge and uh, Judge Kaplan referred to as a Hail Mary pass by um, some voters who were um, supported by um, some Democratic lawyers seeking to get an injunction on what a decision that had been made previously where those maps had been tossed and there was a new primary debt date set for August 23rd exclusively for the congressional and state Senate races. Um, in the hearing, you know, just literally moments ago, the judge basically said, you need to be asking the judge in another court who made another decision 10 years ago that set the date for that June primary that said we need to have our federal primaries in June if it's okay to move this primary to August 23rd. Um, and just a little bit of context there, that stemmed from the last redistricting that we did and problems related to the State Board of Elections' ability to meet some federal laws uh, for military and overseas voters. Uh, and in a lawsuit that was brought in the Northern District, which includes Albany, um, the judge ruled that for federal primaries and even numbered years, uh, that they needed to be held on the fourth Tuesday of June. And that would allow for enough time before the general election um, to complete all of the um, you know, post-election processes and also ensure that our overseas and military voters were able to get their ballots on time. Um, and so the date that was set in another court decision, um, that kind of upended our redistricting process that threw out the maps that had been drawn by the state legislature this year, um, set that date for August 23rd, which was the last possible date they thought they could meet all of those other deadlines. And yet this judge said, no, you know, you need to ask this judge and all the, if you can make this change in the date. Um, so where are we now? Well, there are still a series of um, court actions take, to take place. Um, coming up this Friday, there is going to be a hearing where um, people who want to submit new maps um, to a special master who was appointed by um, a, a, a justice in Steuben County um, have to go to Bath, New York, which is in upstate New York, kind of a rural area. I'm familiar with it. I'm from um, the Rochester area, it's not the easiest place to get to. Um, they would need to go in person on Friday to submit those maps. Um, and that will be 
what is considered when this special master, who's an expert from Carnegie Mellon, redraws the maps by May 20th. Uh, in addition to that, there's another court case uh, where there's a hearing next week where they are seeking to have the assembly lines, which were not thrown out, uh, thrown out. Uh, and so we'll have to see what happens with that. So to your your simple question, Dr. Greer, about you know when is the election? Um, that's a really hard question to answer right now. Um, if you ask Governor Hochul, and she was asked this question this week, she is hoping that that June 28th date uh, remains for the statewide offices, because if it does not, as Harry mentioned, uh, when you think about Governor Cuomo looming over all of this, if the statewide primaries get moved to August, well, that will reopen the petitioning process. And who knows who could end up on the ballot if you were to do that. So there we are. Does that so help? <laughs> I mean, I'm scratching my head because while you were talking, I looked up Bath, New York, and that's a five-hour drive from New York mm -hmm. City. And so does that disproportionately affect those who are in the city who might want to submit a new map? That's one. And then for you and Steve, listen, I think Stephen Romolowski is <laughs> the greatest map maker <laughs> in the 21st century. So why are we asking people from Carnegie Mellon? Uh, who are not from the state of New York. I know that you can be from another state and understand someone else's state, but why are we not actually asking the New Yorkers who have been looking at New York maps for census stuff, for coronavirus stuff, for our elections, um, who have done redistricting in the past, why aren't we utilizing the tools and the talent that we already have to help us through this quandary? That's a good question. That was a shrug, For our listeners Steve. at home, everyone's just shrugging silently. <laughs> Hi, guys. This is not a silent film. <laughs> it's a good question. Um, you know, I think in a, a generous reading, opening up the process to allow other people to contribute maps at least recognizes the fact that there have been lots of groups that have been thinking through this process. And all, like, I, in the most ideal sense, this... Um, independent redistricting commission that was formed through referendum back in 2014 that was supposed to be our ideal idealized way of completing the redistricting process in this bipartisan fashion and would held all those public hearings last year and then ultimately failed to come up with a bipartisan map um, did collect a ton of input from community groups that were doing exactly the kind of work um, that you know Steve and his colleagues do so it's not as though, you know, there aren't a lot of people thinking about it, which is why I think the opportunity to submit um, proposals and different ways of thinking about it is part of why is it's part of what was in that decision. But to the question of um, who, why the special master was appointed, I had a couple of observations about all that. One is, as Bridget I think is alluding to. Other organizations and individuals have submitted maps, map proposals uh, for congressional districts and also for state Senate districts to the court through their online uh, submission system. So Common Cause has done that. The Uni Unity Map Coalition has done that. A high school student from Brooklyn Tech did that. Uh, the Empire Center has done that. We've incorporated all of those different proposals in our New York version of our redistricting and new mapping site. So you could easily see how they compare with the current lines and the lines that were ruled unconstitutional and uh, the state legislature has submitted a plan. So it, 
excuse me, it'll be interesting. I'm not really sure why there's this one day in-person hearing in Bath when you can, it's people have already been doing it, submitting their proposals online. And it's really easy, relatively easy to do that these days. So hopefully the special master is open to and will consider all of these different proposals. And like Bridget said, all of these the many different map proposals that were submitted to the Independent Redistricting Commission, you know, that should all be in the mix too. Why not? Um, one, one thing to point out though about this is for the congressional districts, this is nothing new in New York uh, because the state legislature back in 2012, when the legislature had complete authority over drawing lines for Congress and state Senate and assembly districts in New York, there was no independent redistricting commission at the time. They couldn't come to an agreement on the congressional lines between the assembly controlled by the Democrats at the time and the Senate controlled by the Republicans. And so a lawsuit was brought and the federal court got involved and they hired a special master to draw the congressional district lines. And the special master got input from a lot of organizations, including Common Cause, including the groups involved in the Unity Map Coalition. And the lines that we've had for the past 10 years for Congress were drawn in using that exact process, that kind of what we have, what we're face, facing now. And by and large, I think stakeholders have agreed that the congressional district lines that were drawn by the special master in 2012 were relatively fair and representative. So it's not necessarily a bad thing that uh, this you know person is going to be drawing these lines as long as there's good enough input from the stakeholders involved. That's what we had 10 years ago. I just wanted to jump in and ask, you know, uh, the, the map drama aside and the sort of hand-wringing and the lawsuits aside, the whole point of this is, I guess, is to ideally make it easier to vote, to increase democracy, to increase voter participation and all that kind of stuff. And when I hear we might have an election day in June and one in August in an area, you know, in a state that already has a low voter turnout, um, and Stephen, and then I, I know, Bridget, you, a lot of your reporting is focused on this. What do you think all of this does? to this goal to get more people in New York state, and I guess around the country, but to get more people to vote. It seems like it's working the opposite and it's actually you know, making it more difficult to vote. If I may, so that's a yeah. really good question. The way I look at it is that, yes, there's definitely a short-term uh, hit <laughs> impact on voter participation if we end up having multiple primaries and that's almost certainly going to dampen turnout, and that's not good. Um, and so there's definitely some chaos in the short term. However, I think the overall goal is, and, and this is my kind of idealistic, perhaps naive reading of it, that the districts that are drawn will be drawn and will be in effect for a decade. And so if they were drawn to that in a way that violated the constitution and gave, let's say one party more advantage uh, inappropriately than the other, having those lines for 10 years is not necessarily good. And so uh, trying to fix that process from the court intervening as a result of a lawsuit is maybe uh, chaotic in the short term, but if the lines that ultimately come out of this are fairer and more representative, then you know for the next 10 years 
that is hopefully a good thing, uh, despite the short-term, um, you know, hassles. Uh, and so hopefully the idea is that the, if there are, the lines are fair and more representative, that that will invite more participation, invite more candidates <coughs> to run and uh, result in a more robust system overall. Again, that's my idealistic, perhaps naive reading of it, but that's the hope. I like Steve's um, idealistic view on it. Um, I will tell you that my my sort of gut response, my and I think having looked at turnout numbers and that it's that it absolutely is not going to be good in the short term. One other kind of idealistic way, I guess you could think about it is. Uh, it will put a lot more pressure on um, candidates in all of these races to really be out there talking to voters. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing that, you know, that, that, that could be a good thing. Um, I think the timing in August um, strikes me as particularly um, not great uh for in-person turnout so then there's going to be a, a real need to educate voters about absentee ballots um and oh by the way the legislature changed some of the rules around absentee ballots just last year and so this uh what we have been telling people particularly in the past two years when we have talked about absentee ballots probably more than we ever have before that it's okay, you can apply for an absentee ballot, and hey, if you change your mind, you want to go vote in person, that's okay. That's not true anymore. That law, a law changed. And so if you apply for an absentee ballot and you receive that absentee ballot and you decide not to submit that absentee ballot, when you go to vote in person, you have to vote via an affidavit ballot, which is more prone to error and more likely to get tossed and is more time consuming. Um, and so I think that there is going to be a real um, pressure on on us in the media and as and in journalists who are pro-democracy and want to educate voters about um, how they can participate. Um, and again, idealistically, you know, on candidates who care about turning out voters, you know, certainly the more cynical take is if you are an incumbent who, would just assume not have too many new people turn out to vote. Maybe this works out in your favor because you can just keep talking to the same, you know, like 13% of voters in your district that you're used to talking to. Um, but, you know, it's, it's certainly not great, particularly if we end up with two primaries. So I love, uh, I love the optimism and finding the uh, sunny side <laughs> of all this. Uh, just squinting, and I'm not an expert observer, this seems like just a, a hideous clown show to me. It's $30 million about to hold each of these elections, and it's a $100 billion budget. So, so, But the $30 million here, $30 million there, pretty soon, it's real money. Candidates don't know if they live in the districts they're running in. They don't know if their petitioning works. They don't know when their election is going to be. It's really hard for me to see voters showing up. This is in a state that, you know, 
is not all blue, as uh, Professor Greer often incorrectly notes, but is controlled entirely at this point by, by Democrats. Um, and, and we've often expressed their concerns about nationally Republican efforts to uh, suppress votes and gerrymander and so on, and just had their maps thrown out by a court of appeals where all the judges were appointed by, by, by Democrats. I, I, I mean, can anyone here play this game? And, and can, what are your thoughts on, on, on why this process has seemed so incredibly inept and, and voter unfriendly? So I think the... On the one hand, yes, there's definitely a short-term uh, chaotic situation, and that's embarrassing. And that, but hopefully, next year or the next two two years from now, when the congressional election is happening again, it won't be like that, and we'll it'll we'll have the new districts, and it'll be smoother sailing. However, I think you're right that overall, it really is an embarrassing situation that. And, but, but I think we need to go back 10 years ago when the whole problem really started. When, and I think I may have talked about this the last time I was on FAQ NYC. <clears throat> so just to you know, keep in mind the, the context of this, when the lines were drawn for state legislature and Congress in 2012, it was completely within the purview of the state legislature. Senate controlled by Republicans, Assembly controlled by Democrats. They couldn't agree on congressional lines. The special master and the courts had to step in and draw those lines. For the state Senate and Assembly lines that were drawn, they came up with lines that I think everyone except maybe the, the Senate and Assembly leadership said were gerrymandered, especially on the Senate side. And so stakeholders asked then-Governor Cuomo to stop it. He could have, he could have vetoed the bill that was proposed that embodied these gerrymandered lines, but he didn't. And he said, instead, we'll let those lines stand in exchange for the, getting the legislature to pass a, a law that put a, a ballot initiative on the ballot to create this new process that would you know, create this so-called independent redistricting commission and everything would be better going forward. And that was hardly the case. And I think even, you know, people that supported the, that because it was probably better than nothing or uh, that <clears throat> they, you know, realized that the proposal had a lot of problems and now we're bearing the fruits of those problems. And so 10 years ago, it could have been stopped by Cuomo. He could have vetoed the lines and said, no, come up with a better plan and I'm going to keep vetoing these lines until you do that. But he didn't. And so he set in motion this 10-year process where we've had really gerrymandered state Senate lines, especially, and to some extent, assembly lines. The congressional lines are a little bit different because they were drawn by a, a fairer process. And now we have this new process that people kind of hoped would be better, but is worse. And, you know, we're kind of back at square one now. And because now the legislature is controlled by one party instead of having the two parties uh, going at it together, they overstepped, according to the courts. And so, you know, it's, can't we figure it out? <laughs> it's really, it is embarrassing. Right? It's, it, you know, the process should be better. So again, hopefully, at least for the congressional lines, it'll be better going forward. But this whole redistricting process is kind of a mess. And uh, I think for voters that you know, it does send a, a, the wrong message that, you know, the legislative, the elected officials kind of can't get it together to 
do something that is, you know, nonpartisan and just good government. So who should we be looking to to help us out of this quandary? Because as Bridget laid out, we don't necessarily know if we've got a date. Electeds don't really know if they've got a district. You're saying that, you know, we've got this hyperpartisan yet mysterious way that we're trying to figure out these new maps based on something that should have been corrected almost a decade ago. Are there any particular leaders in Albany that you all are looking at to say like, okay, we've got some sensible people in the room and at the table who are going to help us get out of this? Because we we not only have voter fatigue in this state since we ask people to vote almost every year, multiple times a year, we do have voter apathy. We've seen the numbers. We've talked about them incessantly on FAQ NYC about, you know, 17%, 20% of voting eligible people actually showing up for, for elections. So who should we be looking to, to to solve this? And who's working on it diligently in, 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 a, in a way that makes sense for us? I think that there is certainly talk within the legislature about whether or not to keep these primaries bifurcated. Um, so that is one potential for at least this year. Um, and, you know, certainly there are proposals about, you know, things that we could be doing to improve our elections. State Senator Zellner Myrie has done tremendous amount of work um, through his committee, looking at both how we administrate, how we administer elections and um, how we protect voters' rights and has legislation that, you know, would do both of those things. You know, there, there are proposals to overhaul our boards of elections and there are proposals to protect voters' rights through uh, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act of New York. You know, those are things that could make a difference, uh, but it, it takes political will. And I think what we have seen consistently when it comes to um, like really getting into the nitty gritty, how do we improve how we actually run elections in New York? Um, it comes up against lawmakers who, you know, it, it's not their top priority. It is not the flashiest um, issue. It, it is it is never going to dominate the headlines the way fights over bail reform or abortion rights will. Um, but it is the underpinning of how we, you know, protect all of these other policies. Like it, it is foundational to our democracy, and yet we refuse to invest in it. And we refuse to actually engage thoughtfully in a broad way in, in policy debates. And so, you know, Steve's going to keep doing his work and I'm going to keep doing my work talking about it. And you guys are going to keep doing your work, um, you know, challenging those, challenging and asking these tough questions because um, we need people to care. I mean, it, you know, it, it, People think it's hyperbolic to draw the line from January 6th to, you know, the failures within New York, so-called deep blue New York. But I do not think that's hyperbolic. Like, you know, that when you see democracy disintegrate, that's what it looks like on January 6th. But that doesn't have like, you know, we are taking our baby steps to ignoring, you know, ignoring the foundation in New York. Um, and so, you know, it hopefully it will be a call to action. It should be a call to action. Um, sadly, if you think about how ignored those ballot measures were last November, you know, it it 
it certainly didn't become much of a call to action. Um, and, and I'm referring to, you know, ballot measures that would allow for same day voter registration and no excuse absentee balloting. Mm. Um, so they all went down and they, they were all, I think, yeah. expected to pass pretty easily by, by Democrats because it's mostly a Democratic state and they all went down. Right. And, and we're in the Democrats were more focused on, you know, the fight over, you know, India Walton's write-in campaign in Buffalo versus Byron Brown. And there was energy there and, and it was understandable. But here there were these statewide ballot initiatives and a statewide effort on the part of opponents to those issues. A very clear, very simple message, just vote no. And it was very targeted and was not something that happened here in New York City where they where there could have been a counter mobilization and where you know actually those ballot measures did pass in the city they just didn't pass in the rest of the state so i mean it there is i think there's a lot of to digest there there's a lot for um the the political animals to sort of be sorting through but you know from a pure pro democracy standpoint you know we aren't doing we aren't doing the work for voters we aren't we aren't you could argue that voters are are sort of the afterthought in all of this and there's a lot of process and politics and you know but but voters are sort of just left to deal with you know whatever comes out of it this as we've described kind of a mess i would say that so i think bridget makes a really good overall contextual points and i think in terms of people to look to in the legislature for example i think she gives a good example of senator myrie who's definitely been you know outspoken on this and there's certainly you know really uh, important good government organizations in albany common cause new york public interest research group and others um, league of women voters that have been involved but i think on the redistricting question in particular I don't know what's going to happen. I think people need to really focus on thinking about how to reform the so-called reform, because the reform, in quotes, that was passed you know, back last decade did not help things. And there was kind of a breakdown in the whole process. And so either we're going to face that again in 10 years or you know, something has to give. And I don't know uh, if there's really an effort to try to think through, well, how to make it better. I'm sure people are thinking about that, but like Bridget is saying, you know, this definitely doesn't get the the priority billing uh, that other issues get. And so it, the risk is it might fall by the wayside and then 10 years come around and people are like, hey, what is this? Why do we have to go through this crazy thing again? It's not going to work. Well, yeah, we knew that now. <laughs> Uh, will it change before then? That's a good question. Ooh, and then just as a, as a final, and I, <laughs> I'm trying not to be depressed, with all that you all have laid out, where is our board of elections in this narrative? Uh, because confidence levels for them is at an all-time low, I would argue. Um, do we even have confidence that with these shifting dates and shifting districts, do we have confidence that they can even help us implement uh, an election that people feel is free and fair and adequate and um, legitimate. So, I think, so Bridget, going back to your January sixth comment and the and the through line. So, as someone who has reported pretty extensively on when the board of elections makes mistakes, 
um, I, I kind of want to, I don't want to give them a pass, but I, I do want to say that I think the, the administrative errors that we have seen in the past um, are human errors that we are going to see, that there are going to be human errors in how we run elections no matter what. Um, you know, in some respects, I think that these, in the same way, these decisions that are being made um, are kind of leaving voters behind or in some respects, the state board, the, the board of elections are also just sort of on the receiving end of all of this. You know, the redistricting process is a huge lift for them too. They have to take those maps and then translate them into these election districts, you know, the tiniest, the smallest measure um, of how voters are allocated. And they've already done that. And now they're going to have to do that all over again. And so, you know, it is not, there's a huge amount of work for these often very small staffs. You know, New York City has a, a larger board of elections, but there are much smaller boards in the other counties in New York State. Um, however, I, I I don't think that there is a reason to think that they will not be able to run elections. Um, and when there, when or if there are um, things that break down in the administrative process, you know, we will report them, and and you know that's important to know. But I I personally do not go into the election assuming that they can't do it. Um, but I am. I am sympathetic to the lift that they have ahead of them because they too are going, you know, I, I'm not sure what kind of summer plans they have, but they are not going to have much of a summer. All righty. Well, thank you all for a very sobering conversation about where we are. Uh, hopefully when we're on the other side of this election, um, we can have you all back to help walk us through what the new districts look like uh, and for whom uh, to see who survived and who's going to thrive. And uh, obviously what that means for the leadership uh, in New York State, since as I've always argued, we are not as blue as we think we are. Thank you, Thank you. Bridget Thank Bergen you. and Stephen Romalewski. Thank you. So joining us now is Nick Pinto of Hellgate. Nick is uh, my long ago colleague for a uh, brief surreal stint at the uh, sort of late, sometimes lamented Village Voice uh, <laughs> and a really excellent New York City reporter. Uh, Nick, what is, uh, what is Hellgate and where can people find it? Hellgate is the worker-owned, uh, featurey, bloggy, investigative um, New York City news site with with a, a sort of an alt weekly inflection and a, an aggressive to the point of uncomfortable hostility skepticism of power uh that uh that some of us sort of wanted to see in the world and that we felt was missing from the um from the New York City media ecosystem um so you you can find it at www.hellgatenyc.com uh, we're, we're sort of doing a soft launch, um, for the month of May, uh, where there is no paywall. Everything, everything is free. We'd love it if people, um, signed up and gave us their emails so that we can sort of keep track of whether anyone's paying attention to us or not. 
Um, but uh, we've been in existence for all of two and a half days now, and so far it's going okay. So, my view is always uh, the, the more New York journalism, the merrier and the better. Uh, the more journalistic outlets that are, in fact, uh, supported by uh, by readers and listeners and are owned by the journalists involved, uh, the better this is both. It's been a really strong, soft launch. Um, there are three pieces in particular that have jumped out for me. Uh, one about uh, for Max Rivlin-Nadler, uh, the headline's a decent summary. Uh, NYPD detectives made a $2 million mess. Why is the Queens DA still relying on them for a high-profile murder trial? An interview with uh, with Serena Townsend, who'd been the investigator uh, of the uh, like the watchdog of Rikers, let's say, really breaking down in incredibly blunt terms the uh, problems that uh, that she sees there and how intractable those seem. And yeah, that then, was a fantastic, fantastic read. Re- really worth checking out. And then Nick has this piece up that I believe scooped the Times. Um, That's right. On the, the lead attorney representing the city as it's fighting all of these civil rights lawsuits uh, filed in the aftermath of the George Floyd protests. This is an 18-year veteran uh, attorney for the city who was also one of the lawyers involved in all of its uh, Occupy Wall Street suits, um, who, who has covered up and obstructed things and then did forgeries to try to fool the judge and the civil rights attorneys who are suing the city about that cover-up. And she's gone now, and I'm sure if the city was forced to say anything, and they'll try not to, it would be one bad apple stuff. But this seems like uh, quite the apple, maybe the sort that even spoils the whole barrel. So so fill listeners in, please, on uh, what's going on here. Uh, yeah, that, that was an extremely uh, good summary of, of the story, Harry. Um, to, to fill it out a little, the, these are, so these are the, um, in the wake of the, the 2020 um, George Floyd uprising protests, however you want to characterize those, um, you know, the, 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 the way the police handled those cases um, ha- has been widely criticized. Um, you know, it was the subject of a, of a pretty scathing Human Rights Watch report. Um, it, it was widely criticized by... Um, uh, uh other observers and 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 in um official investigations that the city conducted afterwards um and it gave rise to just a whole mess of of civil rights lawsuits in in federal court uh, so, sorry can yeah, we ahead. just roll back real quick first mm-hmm. um can we just talk dara weiss um just to to give people a little yeah, bit we start of, there? A, of an on ramp yeah just give people a little bit of an on ramp because it is such an important piece that you know, really does exemplify a lot of this longstanding, decades-long, you know, entrenched type of, you know, hubbubaloo that goes on in the courts in regard to the NYPD. And sure, let's start there. Yeah, so so who is Dara Weiss and what did she do? <laughs> yeah, Dara Weiss uh, was until... Friday afternoon, um, a senior attorney in the New York City Law Department uh, in its Special Federal Litigation Division. And, and in that role, her, her job was basically to act as the lawyer for the NYPD. So, so al- although 
you know, under New York City Charter, the law department's job is really to sort of represent the people of New York as as constituted in in the organ of of their city. Um, her her sort of direct client in this case was the NYPD. Which is coming from Nick as we speak. <laughs> that's, you that's may right. hear sirens in the background. <laughs> they heard about this interview. <laughs> yeah. Too hot. Um, and so 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 what that means is that when somebody sues the NYPD, the person who represented them in court was very often Dara Weiss. She was a she was as as Harry said, a, a veteran of the department. She'd she'd been there for 18 years. She was a supervisor. She she had a team of something like eight people under her, according to her LinkedIn page. She was the senior attorney on these consolidated lawsuits stemming from the 2020 protests. Um, she even uh, ha- had a role um, in the department adjudicating uh, misconduct uh, allegations of, of other department um, employees. So, so if there was some suggestion that an employee of the law department had done something wrong, she she sat on those cases and determined whether whether punishment was was merited. So that's who Dara Weiss is. Um, you know, further necessary context here is is the role of the law department and sort of the legal strategy that has evolved in recent decades of of how the law department, in conjunction with the NYPD's own in-house legal bureau, defends these cases. Um, and if you talk to people who sue the NYPD a lot, what they'll tell you is is that there's a pretty strongly established pattern at this point with uh, w- w- where the strategy appears to be um, dragging dragging um, their heels and and sort of obstructing any efforts at discovery. The, the phase of the case where the people who are trying to to bring this lawsuit say. You know, in order to make this case, we need the following evidence from you, and you know, you're you're required under under the way our courts operate to turn that over. And not um, not to interrupt, but this is yeah, a very interesting point, especially considering right now when discovery is a part of some of the criminal justice reform laws from 2019. Discovery is something that that a lot of people are looking to kind of roll back because it is. Uh, in, in in the words of uh, many different DAs and ADAs, like it's it's kind of crushing the prosecutorial process. So uh, I mean, not my opinion, but the opinion of many prosecutors. So this is very interesting in that context because I don't think we get to hear a lot about why discovery is so important and why those changes in 2019 were pretty monumental. Yeah. So 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 you're talking about discovery in criminal cases, and and you know, but the. The, the common theme there is that discovery, you know, all sides will agree. What happens in discovery is enormously determinative of what happens in a case. So, you know, d- defendants, defendants, lawyers, public defenders, especially in criminal cases, you know, will say that when when prosecutors are offering them deals um, and, and they don't, you know, and they're trying to figure out whether to take those deals, but the prosecutor hasn't even told them what evidence they have against them, that, you know, that puts their clients at an enormous disadvantage. You mentioned the reforms that were put in place to try to address that, and prosecutors have said, "Well, that's a lot of work. Like we, you know, we don't have the time to actually give them this stuff because there's a, there are a lot of papers." Um, in in a civil suit, you know, on on some level the stakes are lower. Presumably, nobody's going to jail, but um, you know, it, if your allegation is that is that the NYPD violated your civil rights and that they did so as part of a concerted plan, 
Um, you need to be able to sort of peer into the inner the inner workings of how the NYPD was was strategizing around something like the the kettle in Mott Haven on on June fourth of twenty twenty. Um, and so and so if you if you can't get that glimpse, then it's much harder to make your case. So real quick, in the midst of the George Floyd protests, police behave badly again and again and around the city. There's been a ton of report. There was a ton of reporting at the time, and there have been reports since, including from the Attorney General Tish James and others documenting this. Very few people have actually faced consequences. What happened in Mott Haven in the Bronx was probably the worst. Um, there, there was a fairly small, fairly peaceful protest, and the police came in and, my phrase, uh, fucked people up, kettled them. Um, they seemed to be targeting legal observers and medics in particular, um, ended up cuffing 100 people, like a janitor, you know, was just walking home from work and all that. Um, now, a bunch of these people are suing, and uh this lawyer is supposed to be giving up all these documents, right? This is how the discovery process works. So that uh, the they're aware of, of what the city knew about what happened at the time and so on. And as it happens, if I'm, I'm reading your story correctly, because this is really pretty wild. Uh, Weiss said that she was sending uh sending all these documents after sort of frustrating a judge. And this happens in a lot of these cases where the NYPD is non-responsive or says they don't have stuff. And she says, no, no, actually I, I emailed all the lawyers about this. That's right. But, but did she? Well, none of the lawyers who she said she had emailed received, received the, <laughs> received the, the email that she said she sent. So, so this, this sort of set off some, some curiosity because, because, you know, uh, Weiss had basically called her opposing counsel liars to to the judge and said, you know, they said I never responded to this in you know in in, in a court document when in, when in fact I had. And so, from from the from documents on the docket, you, you get the sense that maybe uh, the the plaintiffs' lawyers sort of went through a scramble, asking each other, did did you get this email? Did are are we are we actually wrong here? And nobody could find it. Uh, so, so they asked Weiss, listen, we, you know, n- not in open court, just lawyer to lawyer. They, they emailed her saying, listen, we, uh, we're confused because we, we did not, we did not get this email. <laughs> can you, can you send us over a copy of the email? And a little bit of time went by and, uh, Weiss, Weiss sent them a PDF, uh, that that she represented as being a PDF made from the email that she had sent them with uh, fishy metadata, which is not your wording, mine. <laughs> yeah, well, well, with um, I, I'm not sure there was actually any metadata on it, which 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 may have been fishy in its own right. Um, but um, the, the the appearance of the PDF, in addition to the fact that it's just weird, when if someone says, "Can can you send me that email uh, to send them a, a PDF?" Um, the, there were some just formatting issues in, in this PDF that were weird. The, the, you know, the from, the from field, which ordinarily in, um, uh, you know, in an email program is bolded, was not bolded. Um, some of the emails, uh, in the, in the to field 
were represented as actual hyperlinks that you could click and, and send a message to. Others looked like maybe they were just blue blue text that had been underlined. Um, some of the some of the emails in the to field were just misspelled, which is sort of peculiar if if this is a, a reply all to a an existing chain. Um, so there, there's just like a lot of weird stuff, uh, <laughs> and the lawyers were like, "This this is weird." Uh, Dara, could you please? We're asking you again. Could you send the actual native email, um, you know, in its original format, such that we can sort of assess its metadata? And a little more time went by, and then she sent them a new email. But this time, it was it was just um, sort of uh, text typed into uh, um, the 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 email chain that that was in question. Again, not not anything that was sort of forensically anal- analyzable. You know. It, it could just as easily have been something where she had sort of typed this in by hand uh, in the moment. So they're getting very confused. Eventually they hire a forensic expert to be like, what is going on here? Who, who, who goes into it and says, yes, this, this is extremely fishy. Um, they, they then brought this to uh, you know, Weiss's, Weiss's supervisors at, at the law department and said, like, we're like really confused about what is going on here. If you, if you don't like get straight with us and explain to us what's going on in short order, we're going to send our findings to the court and, and say that, you know, we have, we have grave suspicions about whether what Weiss said in court is true and whether she's been forging documents and, and sending them to opposing counsel, both of which are like, Kind of pretty serious uh, offenses in a legal system that's that's sort of premised on the idea that whatever their competing interests might be, you know, law- lawyers I mean, have a baseline level of honesty with each other. Yeah, like those are serious offenses. But the 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 small like I did send the email, I didn't send the email. Did you? Didn't you? That seems like real um, real short cons to kind of gum up. It you know. If if it if it was unintentional, which I, I know you're, I'm going to let you get to the finish of this story, but like if it was unintentional, if it if if it was intentional, then that really seems just like penny ante short cons to gum up the works. Which I wonder, um, and maybe after after you finish the the story, you can just tell me about how indicative that is about the regular practices. Spoiler: yeah. she, She'd yeah. been there for 18 years. Right. Yeah, and and and, and she and she just lost her job, and and I think it's it's reasonable to suspect that she might face some pretty serious sanctions beyond that. She might be disbarred. I mean, this is she she threw a lot away. You know, if indeed this is what happens, if this is what happened, which which uh, you know, I'm just going off of the court filings, but um, that's certainly what the forensic report seems to suggest. Um, yeah, she she threw a lot away for for what seems like a relatively small thing. So to to that point, you know, I I think there are several things to say. Um, one is um, you know, another thing about this is it, it seems very unlikely that she that that you know if she were thinking this through clearly, she wouldn't expect that this ruse would be discovered, right? Like it's it's a like that's another thing that sort of makes this peculiar. So you know. One interpretation here is is that um, she she's overworked, she's exhausted, she panicked, she made a really dumb and irrational mistake, and 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 you know the support for that theory um, goes to sort of this larger phenomenon here, which is as I said the long term the, the the long time strategy, and it's 
in many instances, a winning one of the law department in defending civil rights lawsuits against the NYPD is just to grind down plaintiffs with with slow discovery, don't give them what they need, make it take forever, um, you know, rack up the legal bills. At a certain point, the juice isn't worth the squeeze and 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 people settle or they give up or they walk away or they go to trial without the evidence they need and, and the NYPD comes out ahead. And that works really well with, you know, uh, small cases, a single, a single guy who got his head busted against a wall with, you know, with one lawyer working on spec. Like it, it, it's just the financials don't work out. And, and this and case isn't like these that. These cases go to trial, right? Like, like, like often you're sort of depending on the city attorneys to send you accurate information and you're going to settle at some point. So, right. so there's a judge involved, but, but a lot of this process runs itself. I think that is true. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so this case is different from that. Um, in in that there are many different teams. There are literally dozens of plaintiffs' lawyers across different teams, including the state attorney general, litigating this case on the other side. It's it's a well resourced uh, plaintiffs' team, and so and so they're not getting ground down. And and in fact, their their strategy in the case has been every time they don't get what they want, every time they get the runaround, every time the law department promises they're going to get them some documents by Tuesday, and then you know, doesn't even email to say, we're not getting them to you by Tuesday. It just goes silent. Every time they do that, they've been going to the judge and saying, your honor, this, this cannot be how discovery works. And for, for months, the, the judge presiding on the case was sort of like, well, yeah, you got to do better. But in recent months, he sort of lost his patience and he started issuing sanctions. And, and in fact, Dara Weiss had been sanctioned five times in this lawsuit in recent months. And she was about to get sanctioned a sixth time in in this in the instant motion that led to you know to her doing this, um, so to wrap them things up, she hadn't only been sanctioned in this case, right? She had also come in with disciplinary actions in regard to cases she was on in Rikers, um, uh, and you know the 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 kind of justification that you were talking about the exhaustion that this is just one time thing how how mirrored is this throughout other you know prosecutors whether it's i mean criminal aside so other civil cases when facing like the NYPD cuz you know she's been working there 18 years but you know the is is she the culture or is she part of the culture Obviously, you can't well, answer well, that. But well, well certainly, don't. certainly, the law department has been very clear that um, that that this is an aberration, and that's why they fired her immediately. And this is in no way representative of of how they do business. Um, people on people on the other side of this process um, will will tell you that while this is a, a particularly um, baroque and perplexing. Uh, uh, <laughs> perversity of 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 legal practice um it fits into a a larger pattern and and particularly it fits into a a pattern that is actually very hard to um to to document or to prove because judges for the most part are reluctant to look under the look under the rock and and really start you know if if a judge is going to start um, questioning whether the New York City Law Department uh, is actually telling the truth when it says that that it can't find documents, you know that's that gums up 
that, that gums up the entire legal process, and, and, and judges are reluctant to do it. They're, they're, it's much more convenient for everybody, except for, except for the people who are getting hurt by the police, um, if, if we just sort of take, take it on faith that the law department is conducting its business honestly. So the truth is we don't know. And, and maybe a good, a good way out of this story is just to say that the way things have currently been left um, in, in the consolidated protest cases is that this judge has said uh, to, the, to the law department, to Dara Weiss's erstwhile supervisor, you need to report to me on how deep this rot goes. You need to find out who else in this case uh, may, may have been dishonest with this court and, and with opposing counsel. And you need to report to me every week on a weekly basis until I'm satisfied. And you need to tell me what sort of investigation you've done and what you're finding. So this, this really puts the ball in the law department's court. If they're going, you know, they either need to conduct a, a full and, and thorough investigation of themselves and report it to the judge, or they need to, or, you know, or they're going to, or they have, or they'll, they're in a position where they're not being completely transparent with the judge, but they are nevertheless having to provide him with, with sworn statements. So it's going to be really interesting to see where it goes. Nick Pinto of Hellgate, thank you for taking us through that. Just, just to quickly wrap from the story you have there, um, she sends this PDF. They're like, this is weird. She sends uh, the email just as text, like I think pasted into a document, but it's different. There are little discrepancies, like an address that's misspelled, an email address that's misspelled in the PDF is not misspelled in what she then sends. Uh, so th these perplexed attorneys then say, hey, we've hired a forensic expert. Uh, right after that, she writes back and says, my bad. I thought the email was sent, but actually it wasn't actually sent. And I'm going to, uh, I'm writing to the court to advise the judge of my misstatement. She never actually advises the judge of her misstatement. I mean, it is remarkably absurd and Baroque. And, and just to, to my mind, at least suggests somebody who's, who's run short cons before and not been called to account for them. Uh, Nick, it's great to have you on. Uh, we'll be reading more uh, at hellgatenyc.com and uh, hopefully talking with you again. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to talk with you guys. FAQ. FAQ.nyc is a production of Bracket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Artists, and Critics online at thebrick.house. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and came to you this week from all across New York City. A special thank you to our guests, Stephen Romalewski of the Center for Urban Research at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Check out his maps at www.redistrictingnu.org and Bridget Bergen of WNYC and Gothamist and Nick Pinto of Hellgate. That's www.hellgatenyc.com. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Be good, stay cool, and we'll see you next week, even though we're a podcast. You will hear us next week. <laughs>